welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's cold outside. It's cold outside. Maybe it's cold outside. <laughs> I was going to go with that. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear me sing. Uh, and maybe even more winter weather tonight. Yep. We are getting hit here in, on the West Coast, uh, or at least in Oregon. We yeah. never do. It's it's. Other people would think it's not very cold here, but for us, it's terrible. Yeah, and now there's more moisture coming in, which is good. Uh, California apparently is now almost done with its drought. Nice. Lots and lots and lots of snow in the Sierras, and also lots and lots of Lots of snow in the Cascades around us, but uh, that's sort of neither here nor there. Of course, uh, this is the Beer Vonda Podcast. Oh, go it's, ahead. It's sort of here in that uh, some of those Northern California breweries were running out of water, so good for them. Yeah, now they got some water for another year. Yeah. We'll see how long it lasts. All right. Okay, uh, this is the Beer Vonda Podcast. You are Jeff Allworth, author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing, Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. You can find him blogging at Beer Vonda. And uh, with me is Patrick Emerson, uh, <laughs> professor of economics at Oregon State University, as well as a research fellow at the Center for Applied Microeconomic Research at the Sao Paulo School of Economics. See micro man, you have a long uh, wind up there. Uh, you can also find him blogging at Beeronomics and also tweeting at Beeronomics. Yeah, well, you don't actually have to say all that stuff. I don't think many of our listeners care that I'm a research fellow in Sao Paulo School of Economics. And you thought I was making a mistake. I was going to add your all about beer links, but you know, that's no, fine. I thought you were just reading the script straight through. Yeah, no, no, I'm a pro. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, you write for All About Beer Magazine. You also have a blog at All About Beer Magazine. It's true, although I have kind of dropped off on my blogging at All About Beer because the content flow is... Um, yeah, and, and before we actually started recording, I was I was uh, praising the uh, job you're doing on uh, the Beervana blog these days. You've got lots and lots of really good content uh, almost on a daily basis, so kudos. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm actually bothering to read once in a while. <laughs> so it must be good. It must be good. <laughs> uh, so um, this is going to be a fun pod. Uh, you never thought yeast was sexy. Well, we're going to change your mind <laughs> we're going to be talking about yeast today uh yes we are we uh, are going to be visiting um we're, we have an opportunity to make an off-site visit and we're going we went to uh the imperial yeast labs here in portland oregon and uh actually we say oregon but um yeah you, i was gonna say you're gonna start telling people to i know call them Willamette hops again. Well, it's here in Oregon. Sometimes we say that ironically, <laughs> but maybe you don't get the irony. So I, I correct that over the... Yeah, so a little context, Context actually. About a year ago, we were in the little homebrew shop, Steinbart's, blocks away from your house, uh, and uh, getting ready to brew, uh, reaching for yeast, and all of a sudden there was some new yeast in the cooler. Yeah, these cool little cans, uh -huh. uh, like little mini... Uh, beer cans. And they were, they, they were from a company called Imperial Yeast, which... Um, is an all-organic yeast producer uh, that is in East Portland. Yeah, and they are um, interesting guys, uh, Jess Codiel, Owen Lingley, and Jason Stepper. Uh, and we went out and spoke with them, and we're going to play you that uh, part of the podcast in a moment. Um, yeah, that's what we're going to do. That was a really exciting um, visit. You're looking at me really funny in line. Uh, my... What I was going to say is that I was it was much more fascinating than I had expected. Actually, I don't know what I expected, but yeast are actually pretty... It's a fascinating business. So Yeah, yeast is cool. Yeast is incredibly important in the beer making, and it's becoming what we're going to learn when we, when we talk to them. What you'll hear is that um, 
there's kind of a, a change in craft brewing right now, and uh, even beers like IPAs are becoming much more yeast focused. So yeah. these guys are uh, at the center of some interesting activity, and we talked to them about that. Yeah, and I bring it up in the in the interview, but uh, it sort of sparked something in me, which is it's pretty amazing time to be a craft brewer because you've got all these new yeast strains and specialized yeast. You've got specialized hops, and I I I said something like there's not a whole lot going on in malts but i was wrong about that too i mean yeah. so there's there's an incredible amount of tools to use now if you want to be a creative brewer so we'll talk to those guys about their yeast but before we do that's the news the news uh listed here under main topic by the way yeah well that's uh that's, <laughs> that's the quality that's you the, come to expect that's the semi-pro <laughs> Uh, what's going on in the beery business world? Jeff? Well, uh, one of the bigger stories that came out in the last couple of weeks was um, uh, kind of bad news for us here in Nevada. Uh, they issued a recall, a large recall, um, from bottles that came out of the North Carolina plant. Mm. Um, and it affected something like 30 states or something. What uh, was the problem? The problem was uh, the bottles they were using um, – one in every 10,000 had a little flaw and it would chip. And uh, mm. uh, so you don't want to take any chances with that. No. Getting, a little getting, shard of glass. In yeah, a shard of glass in beer is not a good thing. Um, and of course, it, one of the main reasons it created such big news is because it was Sierra Nevada. And they are um, known, I think, m maybe more than any other brewery in America for their commitment to quality. Mm -hmm. So um, to have, have Sierra Nevada making a recall is a really... Um, big news and and the uh, other big news is the day after they announced the recall about 800,000 beer drinkers called up and said hey I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's real <laughs> I'll sign the waiver uh, <laughs> I'll take the risk yeah <laughs> I'll pour it through a strainer uh, yeah well good for them for doing the right thing I think that I think it, it it's it's uh, illustrative of their commitment to quality that they didn't just let it fly um, yeah it would have been a real danger if somebody had gotten hurt, luckily, too. But. And luckily, they're big enough and successful enough that they can probably take the hit. It sucks, but, yeah, you know. So that's got to be a major hit. I don't even want to think about that. But, yeah. Uh, but, you you know, that this is this is what happens when you when you make a product. Sometimes uh, something goes wrong. Yeah. Uh, the other news you put here is that there is a new Guinness brewery opening in the United States in Baltimore County, Maryland. Uh, it'll be a mid-sized brewery. Mid-size meaning? I don't know. That okay. was their, That's why it's in quotes because it was. What do, uh, they, what do they consider mid-size? Yeah, I'm not sure. It'll make beers for the American market. Uh, it'll have a visitor center and an on-site tap room, but the stout you buy will still come from St. James's Gate, right? Brewery in Dublin. That's an important thing. So they're gonna. They're gonna. It, it's their entry into the craft market. They want to try to compete. This is the thing that Guinness in the last decade has really struggled to do. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they, they were always able to distinguish themselves in the mass market era uh, as a distinctive beer. Right. But with the ascendancy of craft beer, they've had a much more difficult time uh, being taken uh, seriously as a, you know, a purveyor of good beer. So they're going to try to compete with... Uh, well, you know, they, they, they grew so... Uh, much or much of their business was based on their identity of as a as a maker of stout of yep. this one beer yep. and so it's hard to sort of pivot now um, it's certainly what they're trying to do it's fascinating by the way we can now talk about Guinness unsullied by the the stain of commercial of sellout because we actually don't have a sponsor for this particular podcast um, but we'll talk about them nicely someday. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but no, it's very interesting because, you know, some of the big brewers have clearly, ABM, we've talked about this a lot, they've clearly sort of given up trying to do it in-house and are buying up independent breweries. Uh, Guinness is doing the opposite. They're, they're trying to um, build a reputation of, of brewers of, of quality craft beer. And in fact, uh, in anticipation of continuing our commercial relationship, which no longer exists, uh, I went out and got the rye pale ale. Yeah. We had uh, Antwerp and Stout rye pale ale and the Nitro IPA and American Blonde. I think were all ones that we, um, the script uh, had us reading about. No, I don't think American Blonde was. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, but I found some rye pale ale. And so I had a rye pale ale recently. Uh, quite good. Yeah. And the uh, rye is noticeable. It's definitely a kind of a spicy, minty thing. In there. The rye is, well, what I like about it is the rye is very noticeable, but not soapy. And I really, mm. a lot of rye beers to me, uh, I I find them soapy and, 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 and um, I do not like that. They're rye. <laughs> <laughs> They're rye. Uh, so I usually, when I always, I always quaff on my rye uh, uh, recommendations is it, I like rye and a light touch, yeah. but actually their rye is very noticeable in terms of sort of the spice it adds, um, yeah. uh, but without the soapiness. So um, it's a pretty good beer. And what I like about that and the nitro IPA is it's a little different than the typical American varieties. Not sort of hop hop forward, and the nitro IPA is more of an English IPA. So we need to get that Antwerp and Stout. I had that uh, when I was in Dublin. But I have not seen it here, nor no. have I had it here. It's a really big, burly beer. Yeah, it's I haven't like seen it either. 8% bomber, so that'll be fun. We'll try to track that down. We'll track that down when they come back as a sponsor. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we got to keep, got to have some kind of <laughs> carrot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so interesting that they're going to start a new brewery here. Yeah, Good it's going to be. Them. I think we're watching uh, beer evolve into its next stage so to see a big brewery attempt to compete in the craft space is uh, a fascinating experiment we'll just see if it works yeah so all right i'll keep an eye on that yep okay so now to our uh, to our interview with uh jess caudill owen and jason uh, jason at uh, imperial yeast out in east portland anything else anything else you want to say to set this up not so much. We did. There are some technical aspects, uh, like what flocculation is, which we did address there. I hope uh, there are not too many other techni- unexplained technical things. But if there are, if we if we were talking about something that um, you're not familiar with, it's a great opportunity to drop us an email, ask <laughs> us about it, the underscore beer axe at yahoo.com, and we will uh, we will address that. We try not to be too technical but sometimes we forget that uh we're talking about technical things that maybe we're not explaining yeah well as home brewers sometimes i assume too much um so we might just want to say a couple quick things which is that when you pitch yeast that means you put it into the wort oh good call that you're inoculating and then yeast in suspension means it's floating around in the middle of the liquid and in contact with the sugars that it eats uh and then flocculate flocculation is where it clumps together and tends to either fall out of suspension by dropping to the bottom yeah due to gravity or sometimes it'll even float to the top because it's got i assume gas inside uh anything else when it eats the sugar it produces alcohol and co2 so I guess that's about it. (laughs) Okay, so now you're prepared. (laughs) Now let's talk with these guys. (laughs) This is a good, I think this is fun and entertaining. So um, give it a listen. All right, here we go. All right, so we're here in uh, East Portland uh, visiting Imperial Yeast. Uh, I'll have you guys introduce yourselves, if you would, starting with. I'm Jess Cottle. 
Jason Stever. I'm Owen Lingling. Okay, and uh, just so we can sort of uh, set the table here, why don't you, one of you, describe uh, uh, in basic your business and what you do here. All right. Uh, <laughs> Talking uh, about passing the buck. Yeah. <laughs> this is I, Owen speaking. Yeah, I'm Owen. Um, you know, we, basic terms, we make different strains of yeast in specific quantities. Mm-hmm. Um repeatedly over time so brewers can come back and have a consistent product. Okay. And how did you guys get, yeast is one of these incredibly important parts of the brewing process, but it's sort of a hidden thing that we don't know too much about. How do you get into yeast? Like how do, what's the, how did you, what's your background? How did you get uh, in a place well, where you could open this? You know, we all kind of broke off from why yeast. Okay. Um, you know, that said, I, I used to homebrew, and I was a vendor up at Y East, mm-hmm. um, and then got hired on there. Um, I think Jess was a brewer, and then got hired on, and Jason was a nerd. Was a nerd, <laughs> and got hired on. Um, and then we just um, all ended up leaving over time, and were able to start this one up. So is this is this how clusters start? Because you have White Labs, Y Yeast, and now you guys. Is it just because you you learn the business and then new businesses start, or why do you think uh, there's so many right here? Um, you know, uh, part of the reason we're here is we're I own a different company, a mobile canning company. Mm-hmm. Um, so we couldn't start the lab someplace else, and none of us really wanted to move. Right. Um, would have been smarter to do it on the East Coast or Midwest, I think. Huh? But we all like Portland, and there's a strong following here, and we know basically everybody in the brewing scene in Portland and right. Seattle. Uh, so that's helped us get the foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it definitely does help. Yeast is really tough. Um, the business isn't something you can just jump in and learn immediately, right. um, or it's difficult to do it. Um, so it helped that we all had experience and it's, you know, we just kind of started the lab based on you'd sit around with your buddies getting drunk and saying, we wish we could do this. And then uh, we're able to go off and kind of put all that in place and try to drive the industry forward. So Patrick and I just had a chance to walk through your facility, which was really enlightening because as much as I think I know about beer, I, I'm kind of ignorant about all this. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what a yeast company does. So the the end product is you provide brewers yeast, but um, we we just saw how how that whole process uh, at at the end. If you're a home brewer, um, Imperial has cans, little cool little cans for home brewers, and then uh, larger pitches for commercial breweries. So that's the end product. How do you start that whole thing? How do you how do you get the the yeast prop, propped up and and um, started? So tell us a little bit about the science behind all this. Yeah, so a big part of starting a yeast lab is gathering yeast strains and banking those strains or holding on to them for a long time. So it starts out by collecting strains all over the place. One of our focuses was to be able to come on with strains that people use already. So we collected a lot of strains we knew people would want. We start to... We get samples, isolate those strains, and the first thing we do is freeze them. So we have a couple of freezers, uh, minus 80 C freezers, where we store all these. Um, we have one primary that we use 
all the time to regenerate our propagations. And we have one as a backup in case something happens to the facility. And the backup is offsite? Yep. Yeah. Um, from there, we start the propagation process uh, that I kind of walked you guys through. So we'll uh, take a freezer sample and streak it out on a plate and on a petri dish with auger. And we do that to isolate separate colonies. And then we'll pull some colonies from that and grow it up so we can add it to a auger slant. And that becomes our production start throughout the year. And we'll pull a small sample off of that slant, go into a test tube, and then go into a flask, and then take it into production and start adding larger and larger volumes of media or wort to that yeast sample. And you have kind of a little, uh a version of a brewery here on site to create what you call the media, which is sort of like wort. So, yeah. describe that uh, that the brewery part and what how you produce the media. Yeah. So, I mean, when you walk into this place into the production area, it looks a lot like a brewery. We have fermentation tanks. Um, I'd say one of the big differences is the tank we use to process our wort or media in is a pressure cooker. And we use that so we can heat the media up to high temperatures. So we'll, we'll take water, mix it with uh, the base ingredient, which is dry malt extract, and um, start heating it up to sterilize it. We're not so worried about weird flavors that you might get from high temperature cooking because most of that, that media is removed from the product mm -hmm. downstream. So yeah, that's kind of the, the um, equipment overview. And uh, go ahead. I was going to say, in a big part of your business identity is that you're organic. Mm -hmm. So what does organic mean in yeast production? Uh, really, it's about the raw materials that are going into that media production. Mm -hmm. uh, so any fermentable any sugar sources certified organic and then any of the mineral content is from a naturally mined source versus some synthetically produced uh, sources that are kind of the standard diammonium phosphate being kind of a big constituent for nitrogen mm -hmm. that people use uh, predominantly and that's a byproduct of uh, petrochemical production and so that's kind of a big no-no for us. And then some of the others, you know, you can easily source synthetic versions, but uh, getting them in a, a naturally mined state allows us to certify organic by using, like I say, all the uh, constituents of that media. A brewery that wants to be certified organic, do they have to use organic yeast? Technically, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are certainly some organic breweries that or maybe skirting that right. or you know some of it is uh, we're very young as a company mm -hmm. and they may not know about us right um, but yeah if if the uh, if it's available in quantity and form which it is from us uh -huh. yes they're supposed to use it. Uh -huh. so and that's we, that's my next question are you guys the first <laughs> yes yeah. we are and the only uh, so far yes uh, okay um, you know we have we have a conversation a couple times a year with an organic brewery where it'll be a purchasing agent call up and he said, well, my brewer says you don't make this strain. And we say, yes, we do. And they're like, well, you don't make it in the quantity that we need. <laughs> yes, we do. And you don't make it in the, 
the form that we need. <laughs> like, yes, we do. They're like, well, we say that you don't. <laughs> and I can tell they're just reading down the list of right. their certification form. And at, at the end of that conversation, I'm like, look, man, I, you know, I'm happy to tell you no if that's what you need to hear. And they'll say no. I'm like, okay. And then, like, six or eight months later, uh, they'll usually call up and get a sample and come back around. And we earn their business. But we try not to force it on people. Right. They want to lie on certification. That's fine. I don't care. And do you, I assume you work with a lot of brewers that are not organic? Yeah, um, the the vast majority of our of our customers don't care about organic. You know, there's probably ten percent that are really excited. Um, you know, we worked pretty closely with Hopworks when we started up. They wanted an organic source, mm -hmm. and this was kind of the last piece of the circle to be able to close and get fully organic process. Uh, there's probably 35 or 40 percent that are excited that they can be a little greener and have part of their production process be managed responsibly. Um, and then everybody else is good shit. So. <laughs> right. And uh, what was the impetus for doing organic? Why did you guys why you thought that was a good idea? I, I think that we felt like if we could, then we should. I think that it's a, a value that's important to us, certainly on a personal level. And so it was maybe a little bit of a challenge to try and figure that out, which we took on and took a little little bench time, yeah. but we got it. Um, and the other thing, like Owen just mentioned, was kind of closing that loop. Organic malt's been available for a period of time now, organic hops have been available, and so that kind of key component of yeast was that missing link, so we were able to kind of close that gap. I'm interested in the, um, going back to the, the start when you had to find your yeast strains, how do you do that? Um, I know as a home brewer that there's like Belgian yeast are relatively easy for me to get because uh, they do bottle conditioning, so you can get them in a the bottle. But um, how? Yeah, how do you? How does? Do, do you go to breweries and ask if they can give you their yeast, or how does that work? Most of them came from other yeast banks, so okay. we take a known source that we know about, and we know people use. Consistent basis, so we bank it. So it's um, like any living organism that hasn't been genetically modified is. Um, it's not something you can patent or trademark. Interesting. So, um, so we can take yeast strains from other banks, um, grow them, sell them. We just can't call them by the same name or number as somebody else would. Right. Gotcha. We can't take a genetically modified yeast strain and grow it without permission from the person that designed that yeast. But right now, genetically modified yeast strains aren't um, a hot commodity, and, and we couldn't grow it because of our certification. Yeah, yeah I was going to say there. That was not too good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, from the brewing side, yeast is uh, it's it's interesting. In the United States, the Chico strain, um, 1056 for Y yeast is what has been super ubiquitous uh, until relatively recently many breweries wanted a fairly neutral ale strain um, and now we're finally starting to see people make IPAs and other beers with interesting strains to kick off esters and stuff mm -hmm. are you finding um, interest in distinctive uh, yeast strains for breweries to use either as their house strain or yeah um, tons right now yeah. Um, we have a couple blends that will mimic some of the sexy hops out, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they're just they're going through the roof compared to, you know, this time last year. And uh, you know, I've been doing tech service on yeast for 
eight years now or something like that. And I look, I'll have calls where people will, t they'll ask why their yeast is flocking out of suspension and they're angry about it. <laughs> Two or three years ago, if you told me I'd be spending 20 minutes on the phone with a brewer that is angry because his yeast is coming out of suspension, <laughs> no, that's never going to happen. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we still, we call that strain, um, flagship, the Chico strain, the 1056 or 001. Um, we still make a ton of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as a new strain, we have to have genetically the exact same thing for brewers to feel comfortable switching over. We need to be completely plug and play. We just provide it organically in the correct pitch rate for quite a bit cheaper. Right. Um, um, but over the last probably eight to ten months, we've seen a, a huge uptick in, in those, and that's where... Some of our blends and the stuff that we're working on bringing out this year, trying to mimic some of the tropical fruit flavors. We have a couple, we have a guy, Charlie at Laboratory, that does a hopless IPA with our dry hop, <laughs> um, where it tastes like a really hoppy, sexy beer and he doesn't put any hops in it. Wow. Um, and then we have some other people have that, that are, yeah, definitely. Uh, some other people that are trying to, they take, you know, an IPA recipe from a couple of years ago and they just switch out the yeast strain and, without upping their uh, hop usages, they can really increase the flavors that people are chasing. Yeah. How much uh, technical support do you provide on, uh, like, what f what flavors and aroma compounds it's going to get? Does a brewery call up and say, I'm looking to do this with my beer. What yeast should I use? Yeah, we provide a ton of tech support. That's something that we feel is really important. So we like to spend as much time as possible with brewers to figure out what they're looking for, um, what's going to fit the best for their needs, and how to use it, and then <coughs> down the road, down the road when they have um, questions or problems, we can help them out and keep them on track. Right. So we, we spend a lot of time doing, doing that. So, you know, uh, there's the yeast strain, which will well, it's a, it's a dynamic uh, organism. So if you underpitch, you get a certain character. If you overpitch, uh, if you uh, ferment warm or cold, all these things. Do you speak with brewers? Like, have, how well do you know your yeast? I guess is what I'm, yeah. I'm wondering. Um, we've all been using yeast to homebrew or brew professionally for a long time. So yeah. I've been homebrewing 22, 23 years. So um, used a lot of the yeast strains just being in the yeast business, I talk to a ton of people about their yeast strains. So um, we feel we know them pretty well. We do have new strains come out every once in a while that are new to the industry period. So we learn um, as time goes, but we know quite a bit about them and yeah. try to help people manipulate them, how it will help them. Yeah, um, I recently did a, a batch um, with uh, the rustic strain is that what it's called rustic mm -hmm. and um, I did open fermentation and then transferred it to a carboy after I don't know three or four days and um, it was when we were having one of those cold snaps and I just let it sit in the carboy and after a couple of weeks I was like alright we're at terminal now let's let's do this thing and it was still at 1020 <laughs> and I, <laughs> I had to put it up on my stove and warm it up and then it started going again um, it was pretty entertaining I, I assume you that, that's, a, that's a weird strain. I, I, uh... Yeah, the way it, it floats to the top of the fermentation, and even at the end, um, it will sit on top of the, of the beer, stick to the top of the tank, um, which leads to some 
long fermentation times yeah. or um, some need to kind of beat that yeast back into the beer to get it to finish out. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. There's some some weird things about some of the strains. <laughs> <laughs> if we know about that, then that makes the brewers' lives way easier. Yeah, to talk to them about it. It had amazing ester character. It was uh, I I did a bunch of uh, dry hopping with it, and uh, it really worked out nicely. Good yeast. I assume learning about your yeast is kind of a two-way process too. Do you try and sample the beers made with your yeast? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Big that's, fans of beer. Yeah. <laughs> that's the hard work. That's the hard yeah, part exactly. of the business, right? <laughs> you know, when we bring out a new strain, uh, we'll probably um, we'll homebrew with it here. We have my old homebrew system in house. Okay. Um, and then hand it out to a shop that we know of for homebrew testing. So we'll give it to you know one homebrew shop. They'll get five or six cans and they'll brew with it, and mm-hmm. then send it out for commercial testing and get a lot of feedback from them on right. what kind of malt you used, how did it ferment, what was your fermentation curve, what was your pitch rate, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll go try the beer, get some feedback, have them pass that yeast along. So we try to, yeast is weird. And there, there's a lot of strains that are nice but are technically nightmares to work with. Right. Um, we don't ever want to bring out one of those strains because you'll get it people will be like oh I love the flavor profile but they'll be like 30 hours a week at tech service on that strain so right. we, we try to try to understand how it grows and weed out anything that's weird or is not going to work well or be so far out of the box that it needs a lot of um, QC or education on that strain mm-hmm. yeah. and you also uh, service the homebrew market how big a part of the business is that relative um, to the commercial um, well, it's currently about twenty percent uh-huh. of of uh, volume right now. Um, it's gone up. You know, that's that's been growing at a, maybe a faster rate. Oh yeah, I was wondering which is growing faster. Yeah, the, it's, <laughs> the it's hard to tell right now. Honestly, it's just kind of try to keep your hat on. Right. Things are uh, we're expanding geographically. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you about that too. Where are you? I assume mostly a Western states thing right now. Uh. That I, <laughs> I would say that's probably not a good assumption. Okay. Um, we, we've got a ton of commercial clients coast to coast. And how, uh, how, how long have you been in business? Uh, we've been producing yeast for almost two years. Almost, yeah, coming up on two years now. Uh-huh. You say that like it's a long time. Almost two years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so like I said, we've got commercial clients coast to coast. We've got homebrew shops coast to coast. We've got homebrew shops and commercial in Canada. We've got homebrew shops in Norway, Sweden, and Finland. Hmm. We've done some wow. other European Union, Indian countries. Uh, just this week we shipped to Hong Kong. So, How do other breweries find out about, uh, it's a small yeast company in Oregon, how do they find mm-hmm. out about that? I think a, a big part of that is word of mouth. Uh-huh. Uh, One brewery uses it, yeah, talks about you it know, to and, and I think Maybe I'm tooting our horn here, but you know the quality speaks for itself, and everybody talks. And so if something's working well, then that spreads pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the organic part of the equation is maybe a little bit more important in those European Union countries. Mm-hmm. Is, is the feeling that I get, mm-hmm. which is interesting, but uh, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so that's I think that's fueled some of that growth internationally. Uh, one thing I've become fascinated by there there is um, 
this where I'm gonna there's some work in Oregon too, but when I was in uh, North Carolina a couple of years ago at um, Full Steam, they were working to try to find a native sack strain in North Carolina that would work to ferment beer. And apparently most Saccharomyces is terrible for beer. Like it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. I did not know this. I assumed it was all gonna be like just you just pick the one that gives you the character, but um, they don't ferment very well. Uh, are you working with breweries who are, um, and then there's of course Brandomyces, you know, uh, down down in uh, Newburgh, Wolves and people have harvested some Brandomyces from their fruit and are using that, I don't know how, but are you working with brewers who are looking to bank their own yeast, find their own yeast, wild yeast, that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. We have a few customers that have obtained yeast strains from their fermentations where they're not sure where they came from. Um, a lot of them might be breweries that are fermenting in barrels or doing long barrel aging. Yeah. And they've been just uh, taking a portion of that beer in the barrel and adding that to other barrels to inoculate them. Uh, but a lot of them have been wanting to have some insurance. Right. So if something happens, they can get those strains. So they'll send us a sample. We'll see what's in there and bank it. Um, then they can order it whenever they'd like. And how do you tell yeasts apart? Like when you look at it through the microscope, how do you know uh, one ale strain from another, how, a bread strain from another, or even bread from ale? Yeah, looking, I mean, looking at yeast under the scope is, it's pretty tough to differentiate most strains. There's some strains that are somewhat unique, but you can't rely on a microscope. Okay. Um, some of it comes through plating and just looking at how the yeast colonies grow on different medias mm -hmm. and then just some experience on like how quickly they grow um, it's it's not I guess you could use some genetic testing techniques mm -hmm. to to differentiate that you can for some strains mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is just kind of knowing what pops up on plates and what they look like and it's mm -hmm. After a while, it's easy to tell which bugs are desirable and which aren't going to be. <laughs> yeah. Really? How do you yeah. tell that? What? Oh, just how quickly they grow, what temperatures they grow at, what they the colonies look like um, after staring at plates for 20 years. So yeah. you kind of get an idea of what That doesn't look good. Yeah, that's good. There's certainly some differentiation that can happen in the scope between Brittomyces, bacteria, and in Saccharomyces, those are pretty easy to see, but you know, one ale from another can—that's not something that you're going to necessarily see visually. In gotcha. mm -hmm. It seems like um, our understanding. Of, there's a lot of things about beer that we don't really understand very well. Um, when you talk to, or at some point, we're going to finally interview Tom Shellhammer, and he's going to tell us how little we know about hops. Um, it seems like there's a lot of mystery around yeast too. You know, even where 1056 came from, it's the Valentine yeast, isn't it? And all, all these kind of mysteries surrounding yeast. Is, is it as rudimentary as I think it is, or do you guys know more about yeast than we think we know? I think you know. Well, I think we, <laughs> How much do you think we know? <laughs> do we know it all? <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> I think in the brewing world, for a lot of breweries, it's one of the more mysterious ingredients and they a lot of brewers treat it that way too what we've tried to do is educate brewers on um, I guess taking the mystery out of it a little bit mm -hmm. and how to use it and 
how to use it as a quantifiable part of the process. Um, so I, I don't think yeast is as mysterious as most people think, but then again, there's hundreds of thousands of papers on Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It's one of, I think, if not the most studied microorganism, one of, one of them. Mm -hmm. So there's always new things to be understood about how it works and, and what it does. So it is, I guess, mysterious and not. Yeah. But how brewers use it, it's, um, you know, I've, they're learning. Brewers are getting better at understanding yeast and how important it is and how to treat it. Right. Um, uh, Patrick and I went to uh, the UK together when I was writing a book, and we went to the uh, Sam Smith's Brewery. And they, I don't know if you know too much about that yeast, but it is a really weird yeast. Um, it's so flocculent that they have to have these fans over the wort that uh, pulls the yeast from the from the from the bottom. They have these squares, which is another whole thing. But and sprays the the yeast back over the top of the beer so that it will continue to ferment out because it just drops out of suspension instantly. Um, and the brewer admitted that that's sort of weird, and you probably don't like to have your yeast flying through the <laughs> typical practices, but it goes to show how uh, within, you know, breweries become their own ecosystems, and I'm sure that yeast 100 years ago didn't behave like that. Um, how long does it take for a yeast to migrate, and do you guys have to worry about that here in the lab? Um, from our lab standpoint, that's why we have the freezer, and so we um, can maintain a pure culture for a long time, mm -hmm. and to make sure that happens every propagation we do starts from the slant and goes through the process. We don't take yeast from a propagation and re-pitch it into the next one mm -hmm. to avoid any issues like that. Um, as far as genetic drift, kind of altering that culture, I think that that can take a long time. A lot of times at breweries, when they see drift over a lot of generations it might actually be a yeast strain that contaminated their culture and has actually started to grow to large enough numbers to influence that fermentation right so i think genetic drift and seeing that drift change things at a brewery would take a, a really long time and never going back to their original culture if you wanted, I, it always struck me as pretty cool because, like many of the yeast strains that we have that are, have different character, seem to have come from breweries that had been repitching and doing weird things. So, you know, the, um, like the Duval yeast is purportedly a, a Scottish strain originally, and it doesn't behave like a Scottish strain at all now. Yeah. Um, so, if you wanted, if you were a brewer and you wanted to find a strain that would drift on you and hopefully go in a cool direction, how long would that take? You, like, how I many think years? it would take hundreds of repitchings to get that. So it just depends on how often you're repitching that yeast. Mm, yeah. um, it might take a while. Yeah. And then you don't know if it's going to go in the direction you want. Exactly. It might go in the direction of flavors that you don't like. Right. <laughs> flocculation characteristics that you don't like. That's why most breweries, after a certain period of time or a certain amount of repitching, they'll go back to and restart again right. with the straight so in case people don't know, flocculation is um, the, the clumping, is that what it, te 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 yeah, the technical Yeah, technically it's the ability of the yeast to stick together and form 
groups or flocks, which and that causes drops. them to drop out at the end of fermentation or rise to the top during fermentation. So let's talk about non-flocculent yeast. As you mentioned, now people are really crazy for these. Um, <laughs> Uh, are you getting more requests for yeast to stay in suspension? Uh, yeah, I think it's more education on it at this stage that what in like the Northeast IPA specifically, mm -hmm. um, you're not seeing, that's not yeast and the yeast is not staying there for, you know, six to eight weeks and looking like mud in right. that they're using wheat flour or uh, trying to increase their protein load and maybe doing some protein haze stabilization or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's not the yeast in suspension that is causing that. So we do get it and, you know, you get, it's like, hey, man, my yeast flocked out of suspension. That's what it does at the end. For me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's some strains that um, stay, in, stay in suspension a lot longer than other ones do, but, uh -huh. you know, to get something that looks like cloudy... Uh, orange juice that's not yeast. Okay, mm -hmm. you so. heard it here. That's not yeast. This is a big debate. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, there's a pretty simple test you can run um, uh, to figure out if it's protein or yeast haze mm -hmm. in there. Um, it's not yeast. Uh, we so we have a brewery here in town called the Widmer Brothers, and mm -hmm. they have a yeast strain that stays in suspension. And I assume that that's partly the wheat too, but. Um, they, uh, when you have yeast uh, that stays in suspension, um, whether it's a Bavarian Weizen, maybe more, more typically than uh, than Widmers. I don't know how they do do it. But, uh, uh, they store their kegs. I think they when they ship their kegs out, they go out upside down, right? For the Hefe Weizen, I don't know. Get I don't. On the boat. Um, I, don't know, I could be wrong. Yeah, I know some going back on that. And not to answer. Okay, that's what I would, yeah. the, the, the actual question I was going to say is there are ye, there are beers that are characterized by yeast that mm -hmm. have a yeasty character. Yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. Not all yeast tastes the same though, right? It's like some some yeast is kind of neutral tasting, and some has that really bread like fermenty sourdoughy taste. Um, do you? I, I've always wondered like why does yeast taste different? I think a lot of it is how old that yeast is and the beer. So if that's you know those beers that were traditionally cloudy from the yeast they're usually super fresh beers yeah. so it's fermented in a few days and packaged up and consumed right um yeah bavarian weizens don't even have like a, i visited a weizen brewery in, in bavaria and they didn't even have uh bright tanks yeah. they went straight from fermentation into the bottle so i mean that's the best way to keep yeast in suspension is package that beer before it all drops out um, if you put cloudy yeasty beer I should say yeasty beer into a 12 ounce bottle it's not very far for that yeast to drop out mm -hmm. so you can put all the yeast you want into that container after a few days it's going to settle out yeah. so a lot of the haze that you get in cloudy beers is produced by protein polyphenol interaction Yeah, mm -hmm. um, that's how probably most cloudy beers are being or how they're making them, influencing that, that haze. I think it, it seems to me that the character that people really like in the, the, the Northeast or New England IPAs is the the low bitterness in the hops and then the fruity esters that they're getting from the yeast. So when people call you, do you say, well, what you really need to be concerned with 
it's not flocculation, but uh, ester production, or uh, how do you talk to how do you talk um, about these kind of beers? You know, uh, there's a couple different strains that we offer specifically: juice, dry hop, citrus. Um, it's kind of understanding their system, how big they're doing, uh, what they're trying to, what kind of flavor profile they want to do, mm -hmm. and are they comfortable using a mixed fermentation? Uh, so dry hop is a blend. Um, that's going to change over time based on flocculation and harvesting and repitching. Mm. Um, you know, are they comfortable coming back and buying more yeast from us every four or five times? I'm comfortable with it. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, there's other strains that work better as a house strain. Yeah. Um, juice specifically is a pretty nice house strain. And so um, it's having a conversation on, you know, what kind of beers they're making. You know, do they want to bring in a new strain specifically for one style of beer? Or do we want to find a strain that's going to work well across a wider family of beers so they can save money and it's easier to keep yeast alive for repitching if you have multiple beers going at once so it's not being stored very long. Right. Um, and then it's, you know, what kind of system are you on? What's your harvesting technique? Um, how are you going to... Are you going to package it? You know, is it being all sold over the bar? Um, uh, so there's tons and tons of variables, and it's just really how much they want to do. Um, a lot of it is, you know, uh, going back to an earlier question, it's, you know, how well can we describe the specific flavors of it? Uh, you know, we're going to get people in the ballpark, uh, but, you know, their, their water their hop usage, their grain bill, uh, their brew system, uh, all of that is going to play a big role in how that beer turns out. So, you know, I can say it's going to taste like peaches, and maybe it doesn't taste like peaches. Um, uh, so it's trying to get people in the ballpark and then making sure that we provide a yeast strain that's going to work for what they want it to work with. And then... Uh, Kind of going from there. Usually, it's some samples and sample brews. Samples are always free for commercial guys. Mm. Um, um, so education samples, and then just working with them on it. Yeah. And you guys have a lot of specialized equipment. You obviously a lot of personal knowledge and years and years of experience. Uh, are there any breweries that do this in house? Do they have their own yeast operation? And how big do you have to be to make, make to, for that to make sense? Yeah, there's breweries doing their own yeast production and management. Mm -hmm. um, I think you'd have to be, I mean, you can be as small as you want and manage your own yeast, but to, uh, for the main breweries that are doing that, I'm guessing they're going to be 100,000 right. plus barrels so they can hire somebody to, to take care of that mm -hmm. and buy the equipment and, and manage it. Um, a lot of those breweries will rely on us to do the base steps as well. Mm -hmm. And they'll just buy a liter or two liters and grow it up themselves. So right. they'll make sure that, you know, the negative 80 fridge and the plating and the base steps are time-consuming and expensive and difficult. Right. Um, they have us do it, just spend a little bit of money, get a liter or two in and grow it themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh yeah, what 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 are we not asking? That's that, that's cool about the yeast business. Well, I'd say it was, you know, my favorite thing about the yeast business is interacting with the customers, um, working with breweries, talking about beer, and talking about what they want to make. Um, 
the brewing industry has a lot of creative people, mm-hmm. and it's it's fun to interact with them and, and help them work out what they want to do. Yeah, right. Like they may have some limitations in other aspects of their process, so we can try and help manipulate what they want to do through the usage of a different strain. So. Yeah, that reminds me actually of one thing. Um, fermenters vary and you know um, we don't see this so much in the United States but in Europe um, like in, in in the UK older breweries commonly have open fermentation or they have square fermenters Belgium often has really flat fermenters so they're they're worried about um, pressure and mm-hmm. stuff uh, do you I assume you have to talk with breweries about what their fermenters look like yeah, and how absolutely. that behaves mm-hmm. yeah it's just going back to the conversation with them and you know, it's a beginning conversation a lot of times, and then it's a conversation, you know, maybe they bought old dairy equipment, and they use that for a couple of years, and then they grow, and they get a 30-barrel system, mm-hmm. and the yeast strain that they've used for a couple of years is not a good choice on that. So, um, it's continuing education. Yeah, that, that's a challenge, too, because then they've got a customer base that wants their beer to mm-hmm. taste a certain way, and they've switched their, their fermenter, and now their beer... They do everything the same, but it tastes different. You are correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I assume you have some advice about how they can find the, the flavors that they had before? Definitely. There's, I mean, there's a lot of research that's been done on how different fermenter shapes or heights or volumes change the beer flavor profile. Um, so, we can usually direct people to getting back to the flavors that they're looking for if they're changing uh, tank geometry. Mm-hmm. And that's often a conversation we have with our new customers is what kind of fermenters are you using? What type of fermenters do you plan on growing into in the future? So we can help them pick a strain that will make that jump way easier than, than others. Mm-hmm. If you were a brewery who just wanted to have interesting yeast flavors, like you were a yeast-driven brewery, um, what if I called you up and said, I'm going to start a brewery and I'm going to do a bunch of um, uh, fruitier uh, English-style cask ales and, some, and, and Belgian saisons and stuff like that, um, would you say it doesn't matter so much which fermenters you have, we, we'll just teach you how to use them, or is there a, you know, would you, would you recommend square ones or squat ones or, you know, ratios? I don't think I would recommend... You know, normally when people are starting a brewery up, they're low on cash and they're trying to slap <laughs> things together. So if I come up and be like, hey, dude, go buy a Specialized for Better, uh, they're not super stoked. Um, we have done that in the past. Everybody's starting a brewery up in Olympia and he got some horizontal lagering tanks because uh-huh. he wants to make only in Olympia again. Wow. Um, so <laughs> nice. some, some people do that. Um, uh, you know, most of the time those decisions have been made. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of that, the the driving force behind those decisions is money. Right. Um, so it's trying to, okay, what do you got? You know, what are we working with? Uh, what kind of flavors do you want? And, you know. Though it's often the case that people will spend most of the money on the hot side, and uh, the, the cold side looks fairly pro forma. You know, you go, you buy your fermenters, you buy your bright tanks, they all look the same. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Like, is that a, are they neglecting an important part of the brewery that they could bring some more character into? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've worked with breweries over the years that have mostly unit tanks, but then they have a couple weird open fermenters. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them, it's an ongoing 
challenge. So they make interesting beers in those tanks, and they're probably interesting because of that tank geometry and the fact that they're maybe open tanks. Um, I think if you had the ability to do different tanks on a small quantity, then that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it would help um, just get some buzz about what you're doing. But it's really hard to manage a lot of those tanks. Right. It's going to lead to production issues. So yeah. if you're a brewery that has mostly unit tanks and then you throw in some weird open top tank, I think that'd be interesting to do. Yeah. But it would be hard to pull off all open top flat bottom tanks or something to that effect. Like upright here in town, I think, is a pretty good uh, Alex and the guys there do a nice job and they have a couple open tank fermenters and a couple yeah. regular ones. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I think they make some really interesting beer coming out of there. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I, I, I think that stuff is fun. But yeah, you're right. If you're a larger production brewery, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, just another tool in the toolbox, though. You know, yeah, another way to manipulate things. I'm kind of a neophyte, but it, it's my impression. Maybe not so much in malts. Malts, I don't think, have innovated that much. But hops and yeast. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that brewers have just more choices now and there's more innovations. So there's all kinds of new creativity that's coming in. It, Is that true in the yeast side as well? Yeah, the, I mean, yes. They're <laughs> like what we're growing today is, you know, skewed incredibly from what I thought we'd be growing when I, when we started this company up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the malt side of things, there's some people doing some pretty cool stuff and oh, yeah. micro malting. And when you're talking to Shellhammer, he, he'll nerd out on that stuff. <laughs> um, uh, so I think malting's coming along as well. Okay. Um, uh, I think hops have are coming along too. You know, that's a, a long growing process, but just the you know you go to there's so many places that you go and it's like oh we have this experimental hop and you're like I've never seen that number before. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's a lot of cool stuff coming out that way. Um, the yeast, I, you know, we're we're trying to trying to keep up and push the industry forward that way as well as educate and demystify on you know how to run and manage your yeast stain successfully and have right. standard fermentation times and take out a lot of the headaches of um, headaches of brewing at the same time yeah. so so what are you making now you said that you you're you were surprised that you're what you're making so like give us a sense of where the, the industry is heading eastwise like what what did you expect to make and what are you making um you know I for a long time, the last couple IPA crazes have not been yeast flavor derived. Right. Um, and alluding, I think you started out with, you know, the Chico 1056 or flagship. Um, for a long time, people wanted an extremely neutral, uh, extremely neutral strain. They would love it to flock out better, but mm -hmm. at the same time, they don't have diastole issues because it stays in suspension, mm -hmm. um, which is a good thing. Uh, you know, the last eight, nine, ten years, how long has that that strain been? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was kind of the golden goose for a long time, was like, okay, how can we find a Chico strain, essentially, with that, you know, neutrality and then consistent performance, but had better flocculation. That that was like this pinnacle of, if we could find that, then it's all done. <laughs> and now it's like, okay, well, yeah, how do we find uh, a more ester-driven yeast, or how do we, you know, 
we have peach, we want papaya, you know. How, right. So I think that's the surprise really there is just we're looking for more flavorful yeasts rather than less. Right. Yeah. And there's there's a you know, there's some boutique labs starting up and there's some little breweries that will do their own their own proprietary yeast strain and their own fermentation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that stuff was like Belgian focused and I think people are starting to bring um, to marry up more flavor or more flavorful flavorful American strains with IPAs, which um, uh, I didn't expect that at all. I figured that was just going to be hop driven, and people wanted something neutral, and uh, that's yeah, changed completely. Yeah, I think people or brewers' understanding of how esters interact with hop aromas is becoming more defined or understood. Yeah. So that's another driver of um, finding yeast strain that will work well for your beers. And this is a big thing. The biochemistry of the way uh, dry hops work with yeast is apparently a a really big issue that is maybe not super well known about how how the flavors uh, interact and, and do you, do you have much experience with that? Not a ton. I mean, there's work being done at the universities to understand how yeast may transform different hop compounds into flavors that are different than what they started out as. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's part of it, too, is is understanding all of that or even realizing that that was a factor, which hasn't been going on very long. Right. Yeah, now breweries are putting in so many pounds of hops mm-hmm. in the, you know, uh, uh, in the cold side. It's that you're finding that these things are much more present in the beer, and we don't know so much about it. Okay. One last, uh, one last question: uh, Why yeast and white labs were always kind of the the two headed yeast monster in America? Mm-hmm. You guys are here. Are there other? How many yeast companies are are there now? There's probably. Seven or eight, okay, guys. Um, you know, there's BSI out of Colorado. The guys Omega in Chicago. They're nice folks. Uh, there's Jeff at Bootleg Biology. He's more sour. He's a good dude. Um, and then there's East Coast yeast. East Coast yeast. Um, I think there's Craft Cultures out of Michigan. Um, Inland Island out of Denver. So. There's some starting up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd probably say 70% of what we just ran over um, are boutique, um, small operations, right. um, or dedicated to you know finding a you know Michigan-specific yeast or something like that. Right. Um, right. Uh, so it looks like the brewing industry itself. You're starting to have specialization. Yeah, you you are. Um, you are. I, that's. I mean, that's not how we how we set up, and it's going to be. And this is a really expensive business to run. Um, is it? Uh, you need to move a ton of volume. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We lost a lot of money for a long time. <laughs> I could laugh about that now. Uh, um, uh, no, there's there's. There's some other labs that are doing some pretty cool stuff, and I think, you know, a couple of those guys are really going to push the industry forward. And, uh, you know, I, I'll get on the horn and bullshit with them. They're pretty, they're good folks. Um, uh, 
but I think the industry is going to change significantly in the next 18 months, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Well, that's a really good note to leave it on. Uh, we will we'll check back and see what things look like in a couple years. Right on. Yeah. So thank you guys very much. Yeah, yeah we really appreciate it. Thanks for showing us around, and good luck. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and thank you. anybody that's in Portland, we have an open lab. Anybody that's listening to this can stop by any time. If it's around lunchtime, we'll get you a burrito. Ah. <laughs> all right. There you go. Ex exit 181 off 84. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, guys. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks. And we're back here in uh, Podcast HQ, Southeast Portland. <laughs> in the studio. In the studio. <laughs> uh, and we have in front of us a beer fermented with an imperial yeast. What do you know? What do you know? That's that's professional. That's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, this together. is a homebrew. This you made this beer. It's sort of a homebrew. Um, we this is a, a thing. Alan Taylor comes up on this podcast almost every damn time, and he's gonna have to start paying us. But, yeah, I think so. Uh, he's a brewer at Zoigel House uh, who is doing this project where he makes wort, and homebrewers can come in and get five gallons and then go ferment it themselves. And uh -huh. this was his inaugural inaugural effort. So the wort is not yours. The wort is not mine. The Alan yeast is imperial. The, the yeast is uh, imperial rustic, which I mentioned in our conversation, and I actually even mentioned this beer. Okay, and then you hopped it. I dry hopped it However a lot. you wanted. Yeah, I dry okay. hopped it a lot. Tons With what hops? Hop. What's that? What kind of hops? I used, yeah, Alan asked me this too, <laughs> and uh, my old brain said, oh. well, I was standing in green front of one, Green ones? <laughs> Whatever looked good to me when I stand there. I think, it, I, think I used uh, Amarillo, Cascade, and Galaxy, and then uh, in our fashion, put a sachet, uh, uh, I think more Amarillos, in the keg. The sachet is the key. This, <laughs> the sachet is the key. The sachet is the key. It's yeah. an old English cask. Uh, all right, so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to dive yeah. right in. So uh, it had actually quite a lovely creamy head. You have clearly figured out my kegging system. Yeah, that I never did master. I was always over or under carbonated. It's it is kind of a challenge. Um, Ooh, this smells really nice. I it's yeah. So. This this yeast strain really works well with hops, which I didn't. It was kind of a gamble. Um, the base beer that Alan made is like a five and a half to six percent pale ale, and it's hopped pretty. I think he hopped it pretty well uh, with you know bittering hops coming in. Mm. Wow! So that is good. Uh, yeah. So you, you okay. should you should give the. It's really hard to. <coughs> the to the, the, the listeners the listeners don't understand. That's good. Uh, yeah, so well, it's, it's no, I agree. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's <laughs> obviously uh, <laughs> it was the surprise of my voice that, <laughs> that gave it away. Whoa, actually, that's not bad uh, for your beer, Jeff. Um, so it's what kind of a straw colored. It's a little bit hazy. Yeah, uh, it's got a pretty creamy head. Um, it's got a bitter snap. It does, yeah. It, it, and I was a little bit concerned. Mm -hmm. This rustic strain is a is a farmhouse strain, and it, they can sometimes dry out pretty far, mm -hmm. which will expose those bitterness. Yeah, I think it's a combination of being a little dry and then just a little bitter. It's not unpleasant at all. It's quite nice, in fact. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. And I think it was one of those cases, as we were talking about with the Imperial guys, where um, the dry hopping uh, is accentuated quite a bit by the esters. There's a lot of esters in it. Uh, when I was... Um, it's actually now been a month, so it's it's it was a little brighter and more 
expressive mm-hmm. a, a month ago. And it's a little cold right now. So it, it is a little cold. If it warms up, it probably expresses more of it. But at first, like when I was transferring the beer um, before before kegging it, um, man, it was like f- f- kind of like fruit juice. It was I was going to say, really am I getting intense. like a little peach maybe and some orange? Yeah. Yeah. This That's is nice. this is the modern style that the all the all the geeks love. Mm. And, and I'm going to put a plug, uh, not just because we just talked to the guys, but I'm going to put a plug in for Imperial Yeast because uh, I'm kind of lazy. I don't like doing a yeast starter. And the smack packs that you get from other companies' product, whom, who I won't name, uh, <laughs> always anno- I always end up Nobody buying. will be able to assess that. I always buy, end up buying two, which is really annoying. I mean, it's a five-gallon. Like, if you're going to produce yeast, you produce enough. If you're a professional like me, you buy it a day in advance and you do a starter. But, yeah. you know, if, if you're... I know you have a very low opportunity cost of your time. You're a writer. I get it. Okay. But, I'm a, but I'm an economist. I I bill out at two fifty an hour. So I was well done. <laughs> so I don't have time for that. Anyway, their cans have what two two hundred billion. Or, I don't know. It's it's like three times what you get in the smack pack. So it's plenty of yeast. It is, and we it, this is the third time we've used their yeast, uh, and all three times we've gotten a quick, uh, vigorous response from the yeast. So yeah. Uh, that's all. We, that's so all I'm going to give them a plug. I think you should try their yeast. Um, it's good stuff. Uh, and if you really like super into organic, it's the only choice. So yeah, that's true. I like it. I, I kind of even forgot that it was organic. Um, I was just using it because it's a nice yeast to use. Yeah, for me that was neither here nor there. But for some people, I'm sure it matters. One other interesting thing, which we can, I got to tell this story because it was so cool. We were standing around talking to the guys afterwards, and they told us that their pub strain. Uh, of yeast, which comes from brewery, I won't mention, but um, is it's a it's noted for how clumpy it is and <laughs> and funny. And um, they needed to figure out what how how to standard because yeast uh, behaves differently and it'll clump up and and, and it can be more sticky or less sticky. So, more, yeah. so it's very clumpy and, and particularly sticky. And they also well, and they they said that thing about the can size, like they had to figure out which can size to use. Yeah. And so this was, I guess. Um, for, I can't remember the story quite, but for whatever reason, this this yeast required the size of can that they now use, right. and so it became the standard for them because it was the most. It required the biggest can, so they could have used a smaller cans if they didn't. For have some of the, the other yeast, yeah, the cans they use are kind of like if you. I think what Starbucks makes like a little shingle, single shot mm-hmm. can beverage that you can buy in the store. So it's kind of that can. It's a little little mini, yeah, uh, can. Uh, so that's funny. Uh, anyway, let's go on to mailbag and Sherpa. Yeah. And, uh, Do you have a? You have a? I, I've. I'm, I'm gonna. We were talking about this off the pod. I'm gonna more or less cede this Sherpa to you because I don't drink nearly enough beer. But when something comes along, I'll I'll, I'll contribute to the Sherpa. But otherwise, you're gonna be one carrying the water here on this one because you you drink lots of beer and you've traveled all over and have lots of good Sherpa recommendations. So this month, what's your Sherpa? This uh, time I'm going to give, uh, it's kind of a double shot Sherpa. I was in Bend over the weekend, uh, Bend, Oregon, which has something like 20 breweries mm-hmm. and less than 100,000 people, which is crazy. Um, and I went to Crux Fermentation Project, uh-huh. and they had a wonderful beer called uh, Mother of Perlay. Mother of Pearl, Mother of Perlay. Perlay is a hop. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, so it's a, um, a classic Pilsner made with this Perlay hop. And nice. it had um, an amazing peach note which uh-huh. um i i i've never encountered that in um the perlay before i'm not sure why it was so peachy but it was a, you it think was, it's from the hops or the yeast i think it had to be from the hops 
Um, it was really neutral. The the yeast were you know mm-hmm. classic lager neutral yeasts. Um, oh. Yeah, Sally had it, and she was the first one to be able to peg peach. And when she said peach, it's like, oh yeah, it's totally peach. Nice. Um, so it was really crisp, classic German style pilsner. Are they bottling it or is it only on? Tap? I think it's only on tap. Yeah. And so you have to go to you have to go to Crux to get this. So beer. for those for those the the one percent of the hundred thousand people in Venn that are listening, right? You're set. And for the rest of you, I have a different <laughs> beer which you can get, which uh, we can get all over the nation or wherever Deschutes Brewery beer is sold. Uh-huh. Um, they released a new beer called Pacific Wonderland, which is a pilsner. Mm-hmm. It's a dry hopped pilsner. Ooh. It's pretty assertively hopped. Um, it is not super bitter, but it's just a full saturation mm-hmm. of flavor. But it's kind of a classic lager. Uh, it's got a it's got a little bit of sulfur, which mm-hmm. I like. So it's got a little little rawness, a little sulfur. Um, it's very crisp. Mm-hmm. It's a, just a great drinking beer. Um, and for those of us who remember the old license plates, say Pacific Wonderland, it's uh, a reference to that. Yes. So it's very cool. Um, so that. if you do not. I happen to be in Bend. In Bend, <laughs> right now before this beer blows. Uh, and why aren't you there? Really, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place. It is true. Um, pick up some uh, of the Deschutes Pacific Wonderland, which you should be able to get anywhere. Yeah, you know, one one day we'll have to do a pod that's kind of like a beer tour of Oregon, because lots of people come to Portland for the beer. Yeah, but you could actually make a nice little a few day jaunt, spend a day in Bend. You know, we spend a day in Hood River. There's Southern Willamette Valley. Southern Willamette Valley. Yeah. We'll set you up. Totally. All right. All right. We'll put that, that on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. Uh, now the mailbag. Now the mailbag. We got an email from uh, Bob Farrell who uh, posed, uh, posed this question uh, in an interesting way. And I'm going to kind of condense this because it was a little bit of a long email. But he's, he, he's, he, he, he posted as though it were a business plan. And he laid out the elements of the business plan. Um, uh, this way, uh, one, you'll sell only on draft, not any bottles or cans, uh, two, you'll have a, a steady stable of beers across the spectrum, just standard hoppy beers, no sours, no barrel programs, no seasonals, Mm -hmm. just standard beers. Mm -hmm. Um, you'll have no tap room Mm -hmm. and, uh, you'll, uh, locate your brewery in a small, highly competitive town. Uh, does that sound like a good business plan? He, he posed no nope. question. It sounds really terrible. And then, he, of course, the, the upshot is it's the punchline. Is that it? He's talking about Boneyard, ah. which is in Bend. So in Bend. Speaking of Bend, speaking, it's a very Bend centric end of the. You think this here. all just the only thing's all random, <laughs> don't you? No, it's not random. I have a plan, man. I have uh, a plan. Yeah, Boneyard's got a lot of uh, um, respect. Uh, they seem to be doing very well. They're sought out beer. They're basically an IPA house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I know them for. Yeah, they big, do. Ho- big hoppy beers. Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, Hop House, because they do session IPAs up to double IPAs. Right. And uh, I think they have a black IPA and so on and so forth. So, yeah. and, and But um, I didn't know that. I didn't know they weren't packaging. I don't know. I guess I've, that's right. I guess I haven't never seen a Boneyard in the package, maybe? You've never? Have you seen a bottle of Boneyard? Well, maybe not. There's a lot of bottles on those shelves these days in Oregon. There's, <laughs> there's so many different ones. But, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Everybody send... Uh, Patrick, a picture of your Boneyard beer. Inundate <laughs> him with all those photos you have uh, of your uh, bottles. Yeah, so this is this is kind of, you know, um, when I think about, like, a, if, if somebody wants to try and make a business out of brewing in Portland, Oregon, for example, what I would say is, all right, you probably want to think about maybe a brew pub model, right? right? You want to sell it yourself. 
uh, you um, so the, the no tap room that's a bad idea you should definitely have a tap room <laughs> uh, you, you want to keep make, make sure you keep having seasonals and specialty beers because you want to have buzz I would say that um, I guess the keg the no packaging thing that's interesting because I, I, I know I know the margins well but from what I understand from talking to brewers that's where the, the best margins are you don't have to come up with label art. You don't have to. Yeah. Uh, so it does seem like it does seem like you avoid a bunch of costs, and you know retailers are a pain in the butt to deal with, and trying to get shelf space. So I kind of see that, but yeah, I would, I would be, I would be nervous for you if you started this. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things to be said about Boneyard that are are, are instructive. One is that uh, it it came out. Um, Boneyard debuted right at the moment that um, IPAs were becoming ascendant, and it was one of the first uh, breweries to really release what we would now consider a modern IPA. Mm-hmm. Um, with, they have a, a beer called RPM. It's their standard IPA. And for a while, right. it was the, the the it beer in, it was, yeah. in Oregon. And that allowed them to um, build a, a reputation for these kind of beers mm-hmm. and name, uh, you know, name recognition. So when other beers came out, people were like, oh, yeah, they make that, that one But beer. they have no actual presence in Bend. Like, there's no tap room, there's no pub, there's nothing. They have a brewery, and I've been to the brewery, and I think you can, I think you can actually cruise in and buy beer. Um, the day that I was there, they were, uh, they were not open, and I was not this weekend. Um, the, the but there's not one. a place where they're like they have seating and tables and stuff. Yeah, no, it's not, yeah. it's not a, huh. a, not a big retail outlet. Interesting. Um, but I think, I think you know, it, it goes to show that the business model is part of it but you need to make exceptional beer if you want to, if you make exceptional beer you have a very clear sense of your own identity mm-hmm. uh and a, a good business strategy um that will overcome some you know strategic yeah. things likewise if you if you do all the opposite things you have a big brand new brewer and you make a bunch of different kinds of beers mm-hmm. and you're putting them in bottles and you have a big beautiful new brewery but your beer is kind of mediocre <laughs> Yeah, and, gonna, I, and, and, and sometimes, good. you know, business plans weren't always what they had planned to begin with. So, you right. know, uh, if you start small and you just kind of grow and grow in the areas where you seem to be successful, then you might end up sort of looking like you had a business plan like this, but it wasn't necessarily the one you had from the start. One thing I'll just mention is um, you can self-distribute in Oregon. And I know that Ninkazi, when they were starting out, they were doing a lot of self-distributing. So they were uh, sort of cutting out the distributor margin and and selling kegs directly to, to bars all around the, at least the Southern Willamette Valley. Yeah. Because I used to see their trucks in, in, in Corvallis all the time. Yeah, I don't know if uh, uh, Boneyard is or not, but yeah, it's true that um, you can make a lot more money on a barrel of beer if you're self-distributing. Yeah, so, so that's, that's not bad. Yeah, so... Uh, and by the way, speaking of this, and this is going to be really sort of inside baseball, sorry for this, but I was driving along my neighborhood, and I, I live fairly close to a, a brewery called Gigantic, who has kind of a locally famous brewer called Van Havig, and their their delivery van drove by, and it was Van driving the van. Nice. <laughs> that's, a, that's a small businessman there. Oh, van in the van. Van in the van, distributing his beer. Very cool. Okay, well, I guess that's... Uh, you know, he's also an economist. He's also an economist. ABD, and then he decided he didn't want to do it. At University, of, University of Minnesota, which is a really good program. Oh, there you go. He spurned your, your degree. I, at some point, I'd like to see you guys getting a smackdown over that. I've, you know, he and I have never met, so we'll have to. Oh, we should get him. You'll have pod. to introduce us. We should definitely. He is one of the more entertaining people in beer. Yeah, he um, and Ben. 
yeah together let's do a pod they're opposites speaking of pods uh this one took a while to get out that's because we had intended to do a pod with uh tom shellhammer at oregon state uh who we're going to go and interview soon so apologies for the big break but we're gonna have a twofer for you soon yep so we're uh, gonna do yeast and then we're gonna do hops and then i guess that commits us to have to go to a malt house somewhere yeah well apparently the apparently as we heard from our interview he geeks out on malt too so Maybe we'll learn about both there. It's true. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Of course, uh, you should be in touch. And how you be in touch is uh, through um, the uh, Beervana pod, Beervana that blog. Sm- that was smooth. That was, uh, everything about that was very smooth. <laughs> the Beervana. I was looking at your script and I was like, I'm not, oh, really, don't this blame is not what script. I'm reading. So my brain was having a little <laughs> split there. Uh, yeah. So uh, the Beervana blog blog facebook page thank you very much for that uh it's a great way to be in touch also you can uh email at the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com uh jeff of course uh blogs at beervana and at all and writes for all about beer magazine and he tweets uh, at beervana and patrick uh can be found at the beeronomics blog sometimes blogging you've kind of gotten a few blogs out recently mm-hmm. uh and also more re- reliably at uh his Twitter handle, which is at Beernomics. That's right. And and if you go to either one of our blogs, you'll have the delightful experience. You, if you wonder what we look like, uh, you can see a little video of us on local TV. Oh, it's true. You're on TV. And and, and uh, my only plug for this, the only reason why you should look at this is because apparently if you were an MTV viewer in the 1990s, you'll know the host because he's landed in Portland, apparently. Yep. Brian McFadden. Brian McFadden. Good Good job. I was no way I was going to remember his name. <laughs> That's right. So, so if you're if you're an M, if you're an MTV enthusiast um, and, and wondering what Brian's up to, well, and he had out. us on because of this here very podcast. That's we were right. talking a little bit about the podcast. So that's right. All right. Well, uh, we only have one. We only have one glass. How do you cheers with one glass? Um, I'm going to drink. You can just pretend. Maybe you can like click it on something. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers. <laughs> yeah.